Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders Teach, our mini-series on medical education from The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kurzanovskaya. On tonight's episode, we will discuss well-being in medical education with Dr. Chantal Young. Before we get started with that, Ira, could you remind the audience what we do on this show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. We had a wonderful conversation with our guest, Dr. Young, tonight. We cover many topics around student and learner mental health in medical school and residency. Um, We talk about kind of one-on-one direct approaches you can take with students who are struggling with mental health issues. We talk about self-assessment for learners, and we cover some of her work with the AAMC COSA Committee on Student Affairs, where she is looking at bigger picture Um, systemic approaches that we can take to improve mental health of learners. And Dr. Chantal Young is a clinical psychologist and the Director of Medical Student Wellness at the Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California, USC. Having been raised in a highly competitive academic environment in Northern Virginia, she understands the pressure. Chantal is deeply motivated by the beautiful minds and hearts of her medical students. Her passions are teaching them to love themselves as much as they love their patients and advocating to make medical school a more humane experience. So without further ado, let's get to it. Well, thank you for joining us, Dr. Young. Are you okay if we call you Chantal for this recording? Of course, please do. Wonderful. Uh, So we will um, just start with some rapid fire questions to get to know you a little bit better. Um, Could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Sure. I am a 39-year-old Virginia native living in LA, child of a Midwestern dad and an immigrant mom from Athens, Greece. I'm a salsa dancer, a harp player, a backpacker, and a totally obsessed cat mom. I love it. (laughs) I am so impressed how well-rounded all of our guests are. It's, you know, being in the medical profession is already busy enough and to also be a harp player is is very impressive. (laughs) Mediocre, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I love that. That stood out to me too. Well, Chantal, what do you think one book that every health professional physician should read in your opinion? What is that one book? Well, actually two come to mind if you'll uh, humor me. One is What Doctors Feel by Danielle Ofri. That's a really beautiful book based on the premise that, you know, we assume physicians to be these totally objective, rational beings that can detach. But of course, that's not the case. Physicians experience really deep emotions like shame, anger, hope, despair, even love. And how they manage those emotions is really woven into patient care. And the second one, because I'm reading it now that I have to mention, is um, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics (laughs) by Dan Harris. (laughs) So based on my conversations with folks in medicine about their struggles with meditation, you know, one of the common things I hear is like, it doesn't work for me because when I sit down and do it, it's frustrating. I can't clear my mind. The thoughts just keep coming. It's unpleasant. So people assume it's too hard or it takes too much discipline or it's just not the right thing for them. And the concept of having to clear the mind is the biggest misconception about meditation. So they go into that in the book, and I'm sure many of your listeners know that Dan Harris has a great podcast as well, 10% Happier. You had me at fidgety, Chantal. That was a great, great recommendation. And do you have a favorite failure that you'd feel comfortable sharing and what you learned from that? Oh, there have been so many, uh, (laughs) including not getting into the college I wanted, not getting offered jobs that I interviewed for, but 
I think my favorite failure was in graduate school. I was a teaching assistant and I was assigned, as we all were, to give a guest lecture for another class. It was for a assessment, psychology assessment course. And I got written feedback after my lecture that, and the professor said, I'll never forget it. Um, while Chantal knows her content, she comes off as extremely nervous. She needs to work on her anxiety if she is to succeed. And that hit me really hard. I had always had a pretty severe phobia of public speaking to the point where like I couldn't raise my hand in a class and I'd gotten away with avoiding it until that point. But that failure prompted me to finally face it head on. And I ended up, because I'd been learning about exposure therapy, I designed my own little exposure therapy protocol and exposed myself intentionally to very scary environments where I could learn to speak publicly, which is now like a major part of my career and something I love, which I never thought I'd say. So I'm really grateful for that failure. I wouldn't be here um, without it. Well, I can say having done a conference presentation with you, you are an incredible public speaker. And I would say thank you, I guess, for that written feedback and uh, and your exposure therapy protocol, which I think is the first time I've heard that relative to us as educators. So oh, that's amazing. Thanks, Chantal. Yeah. Well, I wonder on the same vein, maybe thinking about um, the best advice you got as a learner. You mentioned this when you were a graduate student, but were there other pieces of advice uh, that you received that were really formative for you as a learner, maybe as a teacher in your career overall? Mm, yeah. You know, my... um my very first supervisor, when I first started seeing therapy patients in grad school, when we would talk about a case, she would always ask me, so do you like them? And at the time, I think I always said yes, because I thought I wasn't allowed not to like a patient. But of, of course, I liked some and I didn't like others as much. And, but what she taught me by asking that question was that it was okay to have feelings toward my patients that are not always positive, that I'm a human being too in a relationship and I'm going to connect with some people better than others um, and that there was no judgment about that, that there's room for my personal experience in in being a clinician. And then I heard a, another piece of advice recently on a podcast actually that uh, she was saying, you know the thing that comes so easily to you that you don't even feel right charging money for it? Well, that's the thing you should charge the most for because it's your special gift and your expertise. And that's been really meaningful for me because entering the world of medicine as a psychologist has been hard at times. I tend to minimize what I do, or I think I can't possibly charge my employer for just like creating a safe emotional space and listening deeply to people because that's easy and fun. Um, and I've had to learn that what I do is not comfortable for everyone and not a skill everyone has, and that I, it's okay to charge for that. <laughs> I love that. Yes, definitely something not all of us are good at. And <laughs> before we jump into the case, uh, Yara, do you have a pick of the week? Yes, Molly. I think something that has really stuck with me recently is I read yeah, Jessie's book, uh, Transcendent Kingdom. So she was also the woman who wrote uh, Homegoing. And I was just blown away. She tells a story about a woman who um, moved, or her mom, who moved from Ghana to Alabama. And then she, as the daughter, um, the protagonist, kind of describes the story of growing up in this, in her family and seeing her family change. And then there's the presentation of pain and addiction and mental health. And seeing that from the eyes of a nine-year-old or 11-year-old or just a child was really incredible for me. Um, I think it really just opened my eyes. Uh, I see a lot of patients with addiction uh, in my practice. And so it was just beautifully written and so rich and moving. And it really reminded me a lot of her first book, Homegoing, which I loved. And so I would recommend folks, if you love that, Transcendent Kingdom is even is similarly as powerful. That sounds great. My recommendation is going to be the Teaching in Medicine podcast, which uh, Dr. Kathleen Timmy puts out. Um, so you can find it on whatever podcast browsers. Um, but for people that are really interested in this topic, and I am hopefully you're learning a lot from us here on the Curbsiders Teach, but if you want more 
resources. Um, she has a lot of great interviews around a variety of t- topics in teaching. And let's jump into the case. Yara, do you want to start us off? Yes. Thanks, Molly. All right. So we will start with a case to get us at the topic of learner mental health as it applies to the medical education world. So this is a case from Cashlack Memorial. So John is a second year medical student coming to see you, Chantal, his advisor, after taking the USC wellness self-assessment and being a bit worried about his results. He knows he's been down lately because of a few pharmacology problem sets that were harder to get through than he expected. He doesn't think he's depressed, though. Definitely not like a few of his friends. One of his best friends in college committed suicide, and he brings that up to you that he doesn't want to, quote, get to that point. And so I wonder if we take a step back, thinking about what John is mentioning, what goes through your mind, Chantal, when you begin to approach this conversation with John? Oh, yeah. Well, I like John already. My approach is always to relax and witness and try to deeply listen to the unique story of any student or faculty who comes to meet with me. And, you know, the things I would be trying to accomplish in the initial conversation with him would be first and foremost to understand what he's concerned about and then the emotions behind those concerns. So, you know, for John, it sounds like the concerns are the mental health scores that were more concerning than he expected, that he's been struggling with these problem sets. And he thinks he's okay at the moment, but he doesn't want to start to go down a bad path with his mental health. And I'd want to know more, like, what were the specific things he was worried about on the mental health self-assessment? What are the difficulties he's having with the problem sets? Because You know, academic difficulties is one of the main reasons students come in to talk to us. And there's so many different reasons that could be happening. Is he not understanding the content? Is he having trouble concentrating? Is he distracted because he's thinking about another stressor in his life, a relationship? Is he super lonely? Is he struggling with time management, not enough hours in the day? Does he maybe have a different type of learning? that we need to be looking at something else. And I'd also want to hear about this friend that died of suicide or his other friends that he alluded to, you know, having mental health problems or being depressed. How does that compare to uh, the symptoms he he's experiencing currently? And then, you know, students can sometimes have a lot of trouble knowing what they're feeling. You know, it's a lifelong journey to figure out what the heck we're feeling. So what are the emotions behind what he's saying? I mean, for sure, like fear and worry about what's to come. I would also wonder about embarrassment and shame, um, especially related to the academic issues. That's uh, pretty common for med students. And then what about his friend that died? Any grief and sadness related to that? Um, So once I understand what's going on, you know, the other thing I'd want to do with John is to validate and really normalize what he's going through. I'd want him to know, even if other students aren't talking about having difficulty with the problem sets, he's not alone. Other students are struggling, even if they're not sharing it openly. Like, especially if he's a first-year student, we don't like to talk about those things when we first start med school, but um, they're happening. And to some degree, it's also really normal to see changes, unfortunately, on your mental health self-assessment. We do a baseline prior to orientation, and then we have them take it around October. Everyone sees changes because med school is really difficult. And I would also compliment John for like being brave enough uh, and caring about himself enough to come talk to me and let him know what an incredible strength that is as a future physician and a physician I would want to see and highlight any of his other qualities that I'm seeing as well. Like if he's articulate or really kind or, or funny or smart. And then, of course, there'd be further clinical evaluations of his risk level and symptoms. What services does he need? But those would be my initial ways to connect. I feel like that is so much great advice and a lot to unpack. And I I love how you sort of started coming at it just with curiosity and humility and giving him space to have those feelings and understand more. And then you sort of worked almost through a differential of kind of what's going on and and what to be worried about and and then move on to to thinking about helping him. Um, I was a little struck by your your commenting on the self-assessments. That was certainly not something that was part of my medical school experience. Um, Is that something that you rolled out uh, in your program or is that becoming more common across medical schools? 
It is something that we rolled out, and I've been fortunate enough to have an administration that is willing to support this because without that, it's really difficult. You know, if you send out an optional survey, you'd be lucky to get a 20% response rate. So what we've done is preserve classroom time for students to complete this assessment with some privacy measures like having one seat in between them so they're not looking over each other's shoulder. And we have about a 95% compliance rate, and it's a about a 20 to 30-minute survey that looks at all kinds of aspects of mental health, substance misuse, suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, trauma, and we even threw in cognitive distortions, perfectionism, growth versus fixed mindset, and codependency, because those are issues we tend to see in this population. So we've uh, rolled out this survey to five other schools, and we're conducting a national multi-site study looking at uh, these data, which we'll be publishing on. We have one article already out and hopefully another one on the way. Very exciting. And I, I think that's wonderful to start early in medical school. And you know, we're, we're seeing more in residency as well that the ACGME is is kind of making that a priority to have learner awareness of their mental health be a milestone, specifically in the milestone 2.0, the professionalism for, and I, I think, you know, it's, it's, like I said, not something that I kind of was was brought up having to think about or, or giving the space to reflect on. So I, I think absolutely having that early in, in their career is wonderful. And I just want to highlight that uh, I agree with Molly. We definitely were not doing this when I was in medical school. And I wonder, Chantal, it does take a lot to galvanize your institution to be on board with this and to uh, consider doing self-assessments. I wonder, as you see these milestones popping up for trainees, residents, do you see this becoming a larger national initiative to have self-assessments required or to have this as part of the kind of competencies that we are evaluating students uh, in medical schools around? Yeah, it does seem like we're moving in that direction. I have to be honest and say that I have mixed feelings about self-assessments of well-being, being in some kind of educational competency realm, right? I know that ACGME is looking at self-awareness, which I see as distinct from well-being. You know, self-awareness is the knowledge of how we're coming across to others, our understanding of our own internal processes and being able to manage our emotions so we can be on a team effectively. And that's an aspect of professionalism and of teamwork that for sure can be assessed and monitored and taught. But as far as grading students on their level of well-being, that's where I would start to get concerned that we're, you know, we're asking learners to openly talk about seeking help and their personal, very personal areas of difficulty without, I think, having secured a safe enough space yet to be able to do that kind of work and share it with people who are evaluating you. So I'm not entirely sure how that milestone will be used in practice, I would actually prefer that the residency or fellowship program be graded by the student on how well the environment is and, and how supportive they are. Totally. It's like a chance for them to say, what's my psychological safety within this environment? And, you know, what's, what's promoting that? What's detracting from that? Um, Maybe we should recommend that to the ACGME. Well, exactly. And, you know, as part of my work with the National Group for Medical Student Wellbeing, we are going to be putting out an evaluation tool that um, schools can use. It'll be open source if it's helpful for them or they can pull certain questions from it and use it. And the final question on that survey is what grade would you give your medical school's wellness program from A to F? And I've been a little nervous to give this to my students, but <laughs> looking forward to the answer. Totally, totally. And I wonder, just thinking about, you know, students encounter many faculty during their day, during their week, possibly their month. I wonder what you would say to those faculty who are interacting with students. Should we be encouraging any students we see to, you know, oh, have you taken a temperature check of your wellness recently or your self-awareness? And kind of, have you taken the UCSF or the USC um, self-assessment, you know, this month or this week? Kind of how do we bring that up as educators? 
That's such an important question and a tricky one because it really depends on your relationship with that student. Being asked about well-being could be perceived as very loving and supportive or very intrusive and scary, just depending on the setting, on the faculty member, and on that student. You know, I will just say med students are really good actors when they want to be. None of us are mind readers, so sometimes we may just not know when a student is suffering in silence, and of course that's what we're all most afraid of. But I do think there are some key things that like red flags that faculty can keep an eye out for and gently approach a student if they're seeing them. So those things, you know, could include any major changes. So if like a student is normally super introverted, but suddenly becomes really active and outspoken, or maybe normally they're very put together, but they show up disheveled, that could be a sign that something's going on with them. I will say, you know, One of the things I work with my faculty a lot on are the students who are difficult for you, (laughs) the students who are irritable or come off as, you know, sometimes I hear words like defensive or entitled. Um, Usually that is a sign that they're pretty deep in some emotional suffering and actually need you to come closer and support them more. Definitely students who are super withdrawn or don't say much or seem really, really anxious when they speak, I was one of those students in grad school, um, they're likely suffering from high anxiety. So, you know, I think if you want to talk to a student, a, a great approach is a gentle but very direct one. So, you know, if you could set aside a little private time to speak, like just, hey, would you stay a moment after class, make sure no one else is there and point out whatever that specific behavior is that you're noticing and just say, I'm, I'm worried about you and I, I care remembering too that med students and maybe all of us are super prone to shame. So reminding them that they're not in trouble, um, but just that you want to share that you care and respecting their boundaries too. If they don't want to share with you in that moment, if they don't want to talk about whether they did the self-assessment or not, that's okay. They might share with you later or they might share with someone else in their life. I I like that approach of of just kind of leaving it open and leaving that that place of support. Because um, I, I think one thing I sort of struggle with is, you know, I, I'm so used to being in the clinical role of, you know, I'm there to talk to the patients about their problems and diagnose them and treat them. And in the learner role, you know, when I'm a teacher with my learners, I'm I'm not in that position to be diagnosing and treating them. And so I'm not sure where that boundary falls. Um, so I, I like that approach of, of just kind of speaking out and saying, you know, I'm, I'm here if you need me and I'm, I'm looking out for you. Rather than trying to probe and trying to to push for, you know, action. Do you have? I'm, I'm sure it's very site specific, but any specific um, recommendations of kind of where you would point a patient, a, a learner, if they were, you know, sharing something that they were concerned about, and um, you know, if you're a lecturer and and not in a mental health capacity. Yeah, well, I just appreciate you bringing that up, Molly, because one of the things I notice. Um, that's hardest for people in medicine is to not try to fix. And paradoxically, sometimes trying to fix with mental health stuff makes it worse. So I think the most important thing a mentor can do, if they're privileged enough to be in the presence of a student who's sharing their distress, is to really surrender all desire to fix or diagnose or help and just be with that student as a human. So without like planning ahead, who am I going to refer them to? It's so natural to want to think about that, but really try to just be present and listen. That is so powerful. That is the biggest intervention you will give is listening above any referrals because probably the students know who they can reach out to if they need help, but the gift you're giving them is is being there with them. So that being said, it's also great to find the words to suggest mental health care if you think it's warranted. And I, you know, I'd be direct and say, it sounds to me like you might be experiencing depression based on what you just said. Do you think that's right? I'm so glad you're telling me today. Have you ever thought about talking to the wellness person who can help you through this? Would you mind if I sent an email connecting the two of you? Because then that takes the burden off the student to follow up but also doesn't violate their privacy. And they might say no, right? And one of the anxiety points for us faculty is, what do you do when you know a student is in a hole and they're saying no to help? 
Oof, and that's a really tough one for all of us, not just with our students, but family members and our partners and our friends. And you know what I've learned the hard way is that when you try to over-encourage people to get help when they're not ready, it actually backfires. They may get a bad taste in their mouth about mental health treatment, or you know we lose motivation when other people around us are pushing really hard. So sometimes the problem just hasn't come into sharp enough focus for them to feel like it's time. So then the work actually falls to us. Can we allow this student to walk their own path without trying to control them, even if that's kind of like a dark path for a while? We have to deal with our own fear and our own helplessness about the prospect of watching a student decline um, or God forbid, lose their life because of mental illness. So we have to understand the limits um, of what we can do also. I appreciate that, Chantal, because I think finding the words is often something that I struggle with and need assistance. And even going back to the way that you talked to John, kind of naming the emotions, validating, highlighting their strengths. I think that's kind of a nice framework also for us when we see something that's concerning for us as a red flag to name it. Like you're naming the behavior, but you're also naming what you're worried about. And I appreciate you sharing that approach. And I wonder, you know, we've kind of mentioned a few different entities along the way, kind of, I'm worried about depression. I'm worried about you maybe having some concerns around anxiety or, you know, there's a component of burnout, you know, and I wonder in your mind, how do you differentiate some of the bigger topics when we think about learner mental health? You know, what does being well versus not well mean to you? Mm -hmm. What does burnout and overall kind of mental health, how do you think about these more sweeping terms? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the word wellness is so overused now. I think it might have died. (laughs) I I don't really know what what that means. (laughs) Um, I like well-being a little more for reasons I can't articulate. I think resilience is not my favorite term because physicians and residents and med students are already incredibly resilient people. And I think it can feel like blaming the victim to talk about resiliency when the real issues lie in the environment, right? But on the other hand, I do understand that the true meaning of resiliency is how easily and quickly do we bounce back from difficulty. So when life delivers some blows and we fall down, can we get back up? And I think, you know, burnout can carry some similar connotations of it being the the burned out person's fault. (laughs) But it really means that you've undergone so much persistent and relentless stress and lack of agency related to school or work that you become emotionally checked out as frankly, a very effective coping mechanism right? So that to me is what burnout means. And, you know, like mental health in general, clinical words aside, it means to me, how how is your mind and how is your heart? What level of ease and friendliness is in that internal environment that your mind is offering you? And do you have an approach that you use to teaching about these themes that's effective in helping learners or trainees or faculty physicians stay well? Um, you know, I found I, I've I've learned over the years that it's important to lead with data. So we are all <laughs> scientifically minded, and you know, med students respond as they should to strong evidence that supports certain practices of well-being. But um, besides data, the strategies that I find most effective is to be vulnerable and share what's worked for me, and then to have stories. So to have their fellow students, or even better, their faculty, the MDs, talk about their struggles and what works for them. And I'd also just add that I think any conversation about well-being has to include an anti-perfectionist lens, because we can't just make well-being another thing we're failing at and not doing enough of. Mm -hmm. Chantal, I love that because I think that that is somewhat counterculture to this medicine culture, Mm. culture of medicine Mm -hmm. that values or that I think maybe has a bit of a hidden curriculum of being a perfectionist. And I wonder if maybe you can speak a little bit more about that anti-perfectionist lens that you kind of try to, or maybe have people cultivate that kind of perspective and what goes into that. 
Yeah, I I like to say to my students that perfectionism is self-hatred. And the reason for that is that perfection is not a state that human beings can reach. And so if you set that as the goal that you need to reach to feel okay about yourself, you have set up a scenario where, where you will never succeed. And that's really just a, a hateful thing to do to someone else. You know, think about doing that to your child or someone that you love. And then we do that to ourselves. So well-being is no different. You know, we can get really caught up on, I need to exercise X amount of times per week and get X number of hours of sleep and socialize this many times to feel like I did a good job at well-being. And then we start to feel like we failed. And so really it's more important from the beginning to know that it's never going to be perfect and balanced. I tell my students, I'm just in a perpetual state of imbalance. And I lean this way and I lean that way. Oh, and I'm working too much. Oh, and I'm not working enough. Oh, and I'm spending too much time socializing. Oh, I'm isolated. And it's just a seesaw. And your ability to stand calmly while that seesaw does its thing is really what well-being is about. Radical self-acceptance and self-love no matter where you are in that process, which uh, you know, self-compassion can take decades to develop if we didn't grow up with that mindset or that way of being with ourselves and others. But uh, that's really what it's all about for me. And do you see that there are areas of well-being that are unique to being in certain areas of training? So for example, a second year medical student as compared to fourth year or an intern? Oh yeah, there are definitely areas of well-being that I think are unique to each phase. I mean, first year students, it's like high school all over again, socially speaking. I have to make friends, yes, I have to yes. fit in, <laughs> quote unquote, find my tribe, all while adjusting to totally different academic expectations. It's like a foreign world and you've worked so hard to get here. And now all you see is this huge journey ahead of you, right? It's all about transition. And then second years are dealing with Yes, ongoing class exams, but add on top of that research expectations. And of course, the biggest looming stressor in all four years of medical school, which is the step one board exam. And then third years, you're thrown back into transition all over again with starting clerkships. Um, you know, I realized recently it's like starting a new job every four weeks or every six weeks. Think about how long it takes to adjust to a new job. For me, it's a year to two years. And instead, they're just in a constant state of change and trying to figure out new team dynamics and where they fit in. Late nights, early mornings, lack of free time, right? And then in your fourth year, maybe you have a little more free time, but you have to jump back into applications and cover letters and interviews and trying to rank order your future. <laughs> and I think what all these phases have in common is feeling like you have to be proving yourself over and over, right? That's what they all share. Is like no time to rest, got to stay on. And I, I think kind of within that, that no time to rest, um, are there changes that you've been working on or changes that you are seeing in the system that are encouraging students to take more time for themselves? I mean, I, I think back to my training and I couldn't have even imagined asking for an afternoon off to see a therapist or something. And it, I wasn't in school that long ago. And I hope that doesn't isn't still the case because, I mean, there were many afternoons when I probably didn't learn that much on my surgical service or something, but it was just not an acceptable place because there was that go, 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 prove yourself, keep going, keep moving approach. Do you think that's changing at all? Or are there policies that can help sort of limit that a little bit? Yeah. I think, you know, on the practical front, I do think schools can adopt policies. Um, for example, giving students a wellness day off to use as they see fit for every clerkship rotation. That's one kind of burgeoning policy that schools are using. The other thing is to have to coach clerkship directors to make clear at the orientation for each clerkship, because I think students need to hear it over and over again, and from the mouth of the person that's currently evaluating them, that they are fully expected to take time off for doctor's appointments of any kind, and they do not have to share what kind of appointment they're going to unless they want to, and that there will be absolutely no kickback or repercussions to their reputation or their grade um, because of taking that time. That being said, even though we do all of those things at Keck, our students still feel like, okay, yeah, you say that, 
but I'm not willing to take the risk of somebody seeing me differently because I took that afternoon off. So we're just still wrestling with the culture of not being able to show that you would take time out of patient care or clinic to take care of yourself, right? There's a very kind of self-sacrificial value in medicine that I put myself on the train tracks for my patients or for my learning or for my team every time. And I mean, in some ways, that's a beautiful value and one we can aspire to. And then it also has the other side of the coin of having us neglect the other person in the scenario, which is ourselves. So I will say this next generation seems to be way more open about mental health. I mean, we have students mentioning their mental health history in a 200 person lecture, which I am just amazed and touched by. And so I do think the tides are turning. It's just uh, not quickly enough. And on that note, Chantal, I wonder with the openness and hopefully culture change and tides turning, I wonder when you described the different maybe challenges that students face at different phases of their medical school journey, are there particular interventions that you recommend along the way? And how do you balance that with kind of adult learning theory and that many people will say, well, I know what works for me. Mm. Like I I got this self-assessment result. I'm going to binge watch some Netflix because that's what works for me. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder how you approach conversations like that uh, with students or even your friends, because I can imagine <laughs> I will do that too. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it, it's tricky. I, that's a tension. And I think all we can do is respect our students and listen to them and their vantage point as young people and not always assume that we know what is best for them including, you know, when they disagree with us, we have to listen. But at the same time, we can confidently offer our knowledge and and guidance and, you know, hard-won wisdom. Sometimes one thing I like to do is try to preempt uh, what I know a student might take issue with. You know, so to the example we were just talking about, I might say to a third-year student, I know students are really reluctant to take time off from a rotation to attend a therapy appointment because they're worried about consequences. But I want to remind you that you are granted that time off by law. And it usually is no big deal. And nobody really notices when you take that time off. So you you can do whatever you choose to do. But that's my experience. And, you know, sometimes with students getting a little bit more directive and saying, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to come back for a mental health appointment. I'd like you to go see our academic support team. And I'd like you to see an occupational therapist about your time management. I'd like you to take a full break this weekend and not study at all, at least for one of the days, all day Saturday, don't crack a book. And sometimes um, being more directive can help students feel like, oh, okay, somebody's giving me permission. A professional, right, is giving me permission to do these things that I kind of suspected were a good idea, but now I have the relief of knowing it's okay and I'm still going to do well, even if I care for myself in these ways. I like those practical tips. Um, And when you're in the midst of this, how do you kind of check your own well-being during these encounters? And um, how do you role model kind of a work-life integration for learners? Well, I don't know how well I role model work-life integration (laughs) for my (laughs) students, but I do try to model vulnerability by talking about how I mess it up all the time. Uh, A lot of my self-care isn't something that would be obvious to my students, but over the years, I've put more and more time into caring for myself and taking that seriously and prioritizing it over other things. For (laughs) recently, I've, uh, I've leaned away from answering emails after 5 p.m. on Friday and before 9 a.m. on Monday to get a true break. I try to truly stay off email all weekend. Sometimes I can't do it because my anxiety gets to me, but at the least I don't send any new emails out. But you know, like when I'm meeting with a student one-on-one, that is when my well-being is really important too. I try to pull from my meditation training and I use this approach that I like to call one eye out and one eye in. And what that means is that half or maybe a little more than half of my attention is and bandwidth is on the person in front of me and what they need, what their feelings are. But the other half of my attention is gazing inward toward myself. So I'm noticing how I'm reacting. 
uh, what triggers me about what the person is saying, what brings up feelings, and what do I need? So I try to be equally invested in caring for myself while I am caring for others. And those two things are not actually in as much competition as you might think. I love that, Chantal. Thank you for introducing me or introducing all of us, our our listeners, to that model. How did you come around to that? Or you mentioned your kind of meditation or mindfulness training. Um, Were there other things that were tried before the one eye out, one eye in, maybe two eyes in, two (laughs) eyes out? Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you settled on that approach. Oh, yeah. It definitely used to be two eyes out all the time, right? What does everyone else need from me? How am I serving other people? And not just my patients and students, but parents, you know, siblings, friends, partners. And that's really typical for people who are caretaking by nature is that we're oriented toward other people and what they need and less even aware of what we're feeling and what we need. So this was, you know, a couple decades of practice and it's sort of a classic meditation training in mindful listening. Part of mindful listening um, includes being totally receptive and open to whatever comes your way from the other party but also being very aware of your own reactions. Um, and of course, you know, the concept of counter-transference, which I'm sure your listeners know about is in psychotherapy, what is the therapist's experience? What is their relationship to the patient? What feelings are coming up? And those could include rage, love, impatience, um, even sexual feelings, right? And that all of those are part of a normal human experience and it's okay to have those and important to acknowledge them and work through them, which needs to happen by talking to someone else, um, usually a supervisor or a colleague, about what you're feeling and to work through it. It can also be super valuable information about what is going on with your patient. Your feelings are a barometer of things that may be going on with your patient that aren't being fully expressed. You know, if you're frustrated, probably a lot of people in their lives get frustrated with them. Well, why is that? And so the emotions are not bad or wrong. They're actually good and useful. And so between my meditation and psychology training, I realized let's turn one of those eyes inward, at least when I can remember to do so. Do you have any other questions about case one or should we move on to case two? I think let's move on to case two. So this is also from Cashlack Memorial. Winnie is a fourth year medical student who is a peer mentor. She joined the group as soon as you developed it because she believed in the mentorship, validation, and overall positive effects of medical students supporting one another. She sees you in the hallway at the Student Resource Center and wants to chat about her peer mentor role and the future of it after she matches. She asks you what she can do to keep this type of role going in residency. Is it even useful to have peer mentors like this in residency? Mm. Will there be support for it? How can she put wellness first in training while not sacrificing opportunities for her learning, especially with all the pressure on duty hours recently? And so I wonder, Chantal, how would you answer Winnie? Oh, Winnie. Well, I would first tell her how proud I am of her service and her passion and that, yeah, it's always useful to continue well-being efforts, even if they are not adequately supported or recognized when you start. I mean, in fact, I have come to think that in in the places where well-being is most needed, it probably won't be adequately supported at the start or it wouldn't be needed. Um, you know, if this problem were solved, we wouldn't have to have this conversation today. So residencies seem to vary widely, just like med schools in terms of their stage of change, how ready they are to put well-being ahead of other competing priorities, right? So Winnie will probably encounter people who are really supportive and other people who aren't supportive and other people who will actively fight against well-being efforts at her residency. And that is just the stage of change the field of medicine is in. And I think she was also asking about, can I keep this up, right? So I would tell her to keep one eye in as she does her peer mentoring. Does she have the bandwidth today? Is this filling her up, filling her tank, igniting her fire, or is it draining her tank and dampening her fire? Is it um, in line with her self-care plan? 
And, you know, for learning opportunities, same thing. Those are only going to be valuable if she's awake and alert and calm enough to learn. So it's a case-by-case basis, right? Each extra procedure or case that she's offered, she can consider, today, do I have the energy? Did I get enough hours of sleep, you know, to give some up tonight to to do this? And other than peer mentoring, are there things that learners can be involved in to help promote a culture of health and well-being? Um, yeah, I, I think that, well, first of all, the w- work we do on ourselves and inside ourselves translates into the work we're going to do for society. But she could also start an activist group at her residency with allies from, you know, all levels of the power hierarchy. And she could propose a structure for evaluating where her clinic is at. What's the status of well-being? What are the needs? What are the pain points? And she could think about engaging top leadership through like good old fashioned networking, one-on-one friendly conversations. I I mean, I've come to think that a lot of my work around well-being is less about single-handedly running a wellness effort and more about social activism and community engagement to get everyone engaged in well-being because it's not a job for Winnie. It's not a job for me or for you. It has to be a groundswell of a group of people and then it becomes unstoppable. So I think Winnie can gather allies, get them in a room together or a Zoom together and let the group generate ideas for systemic change rather than what we usually do, which is trying to carry the weight of all that on our shoulders. I love that. I love that Winnie has such a powerful resource and encouraging voice with her in you, Chantal. I wonder, just thinking about um, kind of some of the community engagement you mentioned and the advocacy, where do those efforts maybe fall in? You mentioned kind of the self-work as part of probably the individual efforts. Are there other, you know, interpersonal systemic efforts uh, or system level interventions that Winnie could either look towards being involved in or even work on some of the foundational efforts, like sending some emails, connecting and networking, like you mentioned. Maybe you could kind of outline for us some of those some of those interventions or efforts. Yeah, I think that's something I'd have to think a little more on before I can answer well, because I want to flesh that out, which I could take 10 minutes to do if you want. Oh, no, no, it's okay. Totally. I was just thinking, because I, if I was to maybe kind of put those things that you mentioned into a into buckets i would probably say the self work that you're that you're encouraging all of us to do right to like have that one eye inward um would maybe be part of the kind of individual interventions that we could do and maybe things like the peer mentor group or something else could be more of the interpersonal interventions and then i just wonder on a system level that the advocacy uh, approach is one that just feels really innovative mm. to me. And I wonder what else Winnie could do, because I can imagine as a fourth year medical student or even incoming intern, it's hard to send out an email and be like, hey, who wants to join me on this effort? And maybe there are other things in your mind that you would encourage her to do. Or maybe it is just saying, Winnie, you've done some serious, amazing work here at USC. I believe in you sending this email and kind of being directive, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is one thing I see with med students all the time is just an excessive sense of responsibility for fixing the world's problems, their friends' problems, their family's problems. You know? So I would try to help Winnie remember that we are, we're at a moment in medicine that where the scales are just starting to tip. And we're all kind of just part of that wave that's happening. And she is already gone above and beyond, it will not be her responsibility, not least because it's not possible for her to single-handedly make changes at her residency. And, you know, it makes me think of the med students that reach out to me from other schools where there is zero faculty support for well-being. And they say, how do I start a wellness program? And I say, oh, that's so touching and, and admirable to me. And I don't want to discourage you. But if your administration and your school is not putting resources and money and a person who's this is their paid job to do, you know, that's going to be very difficult for you to try to serve in that role while you're going to med school. So it's really about the administration of her program, but she can still be an agent for change in the way that we all are. And it starts with seeing 
what is already in place at my program, even if it's almost nothing, but what is like the one well-being thing that they are doing? And who started that? Where did that come from? Who are those people? Could I re-engage them? Could I just go and compliment them and say, this means so much to me. I love that you did this. Tell me the history of well-being at this setting and who are the key players and who are the people who are not going to be supportive of this so I can anticipate that as well. And just starting to have little casual conversations. It doesn't need to be a formal email saying, join me in a well-being effort, although it could be, um, but it can just be hallway chats and starting to see you need to go higher up the pi- power hierarchy if you can and try to get some allies you know, at the attending level or higher that would be supportive of this and just kind of start the conversation. If there are systemic changes that you think would be really good to have at your site, I I have learned the hard way that coming on strong and saying, let's have Fridays off or whatever, you know, the thing is, Mm -hmm. um, it can work, but usually it doesn't and it can make your life harder because then you can sort of make some wellness enemies uh, that will be more resistant to your work than you might have otherwise been. So again, I think a group voice and taking gradual steps, not going to the 10 out of 10 thing that you really want, but it takes a lot of patience, but starting with the two out of 10 and building from there is more effective. And you mentioned um, kind of at least two specific things that sort of the wellness day off during each clerkship. And then um, kind of another specific one that came to mind for me that you mentioned was having faculty uh, share their vulnerabilities and share their own struggles. Are there other kind of system-wide, project-wide things that have worked for you or that you've seen be successful in different programs? Well, one of the things we're working on at the national level in the AAMC Working Group on Medical Student Wellbeing that I'm honored to chair. Um, We're going to publish a list of suggested systemic changes that schools can and perhaps should be considering. And it starts with basic things like going to pass-fail grading for preclinical and perhaps clinical years, although with the understanding there's some tension around that, but um, also providing the dedicated wellness days off. Other logistical things, like one of the things that really stresses students is having last minute changes to their schedule and their curriculum because it prevents them from being able to see their families or go to a doctor's appointment or go play the basketball game or go to the concert that they wanted to go to. So can schools consider that, you know, within two weeks or four weeks or six weeks that we have our finalized curriculum schedule that will not be changed? Um, so that students can plan around that and other things that cause pain points for students. And a lot of this is local. You know, it's like, what at your school, what's that one class or one block or that exam schedule that's just crazy or that instructor that scares everybody? Or, you know, what are the local pain points? So we're also going to be offering a tool that schools can use to get at the local stressors and offer them a process for starting to systematically address and hopefully eliminate or at least reduce those. I also just have to say it, this is, I don't mean to open a can of, can of worms, but um, you know, for me, medical education needs to be reimagined sort of from the ground up. Given where we are now, how long should medical school take? Why is it four years? Should it be three years? Should it be five years? What kind of content do students really need to learn in this day and age, given all the resources that they have that they didn't have 50 years ago? And these are really big questions. Um, and w- I understand that it's sort of in a fantasy for me right now that we could ever kind of reimagine from the ground up what this should look like. But I think we have a lot of holdovers and a lot of things that are old um, artifacts that are not necessarily the most effective ways of doing med school or residency now. And of course, Unfortunately, a lot of it is also the impact of for-profit medicine in the United States and sort of trickle-down impacts from that model. Chantal, I love that because I I don't think it's quite the pie in the sky idea. I think you're asking for folks to reimagine, to you know, take a stock of what's around us, you know, do that needs assessment that you were just encouraging Winnie to do to say kind of what's going on in your environment, who are the main players. And this is kind of like, well, what's working? What's not? What are those vestiges that are just not really serving us in medical education? And I do wonder us as, you know, faculty or educators, people involved in leadership or administration, 
many of our listeners are in those roles. And those are really unique roles. Um, there's power, there's privilege, there's um, opportunity. And I might ask you to maybe give us a few pointers, maybe tips, tricks, best practices. How do we hold up that culture of wellness, well-being that you've been talking about and you know, role model for for Winnie, for John, uh, for other folks that we might encounter? Oh, that's such a big question because it means we have to get real about our own (laughs) vulnerabilities. And and also, I think, especially for physicians, to reckon with what they've been through, which can really border on, I don't use this word lightly, but traumatic. And to think that we could do something different for the upcoming classes of students that would be easier and better than what they experienced it requires a lot of internal work and not it's sort of like you know the cycle of trauma we don't want to pass it on to the next generation but what that means is dealing with our own pain and grief and anger about what happened to us right so that we don't repeat that cycle and i think we have to listen to our learners even when we don't like what they're saying even when we don't, we think they're just complaining, uh, they need to toughen up if they're going to make it in this field or when we're tired and we're run down and we don't have extra time to make major overhauls to our medical school program. And, and even then we need to listen. Many of us are, are, do have power and we're also kind of in the middle of the power hierarchy. That's a, a difficulty I hear a lot from wellness professionals in particular is that we are charged with having the responsibility for well-being, but we do not have the power to make meaningful changes that would actually impact student well-being. So instead, we're, we have this feeling like we're going around sweeping up the pieces of students that are in emotional distress. And what we want to do is get on the top end of the stream um, and be able to prevent it before that happens. So I think we have to place responsibility back on our leadership. The dean of the medical school is going to have to be at least in the know about and supportive of any well-being improvements for them to happen. The AMA and the AAMC, we have to use our platforms to promote and encourage policies that are going to make a real difference in the lives of learners. Um, And that's why I got involved at the national level is because I felt like this is the real way to make impact. Thank you. I think that's that's so helpful. Ira, any last questions or should we get take-home points? I think that almost could have been take-home points, but if you have extra take-home points, Chantal, we'd love to hear them. Oh, I just want to say that you are all amazing people doing amazing work. Medicine is is just a calling and it is inherently difficult by nature. It's not something I could do. And I'm sorry that it's become harder as a result of our for-profit healthcare and this militaristic culture that kind of went unchecked for too long. But I do think we're in a moment of reckoning. We're finally talking about this. When I first started as director of medical student wellness at Keck five years ago, that was not the case. But I have seen tremendous movement really in a pretty short period of time. And I'm inspired by each successive class of students that come in because they seem less and less willing to tolerate toxic stuff and unhappy work lives. So I have a lot of hope. Awesome. Anything else that you'd like to plug? Well, I would just offer the listserv that I run for people who are in the wellness space. Um, It is for medical student wellness professionals, but we also welcome other types of wellness professionals for residents or for physicians. We have some chief wellness officers, other folks in medicine, deans of student affairs. Um, And we're about 300 people strong now from all over the country. And where we've created this open flow sharing of materials and resources. So it's a lot of free stuff you can use in this very generous atmosphere. And we also just provide each other a lot of emotional support. So I don't know if you could make my email available, but if anyone listening would like to join, they can just connect with me. Perfect. We will put that in the show notes. That sounds like such a valuable resource. Thank you so much, Chantal. That was incredible. Thank you for role modeling the vulnerability that um, you know you are excited about coming up in the medicine culture, and it really means a lot to to our listeners and to us. Oh, it's been a pleasure, and thanks to both of you for what you're doing for the field and for each other, and for students and residents and physicians, and for me. I appreciate you. Thank this you. feels like one of those moments where you just are like, no, you hang up. No, you hang up. <laughs> Sorry, Molly. I or love you more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> love you more more. 
Awesome. So you're one of my take home points from this episode, I think is, is just, um, Dr. Young's reminder to us that one of our most powerful approaches to working one-on-one with learners who are struggling is to just sit there with the emotions and be there with them. And that we don't need to be thinking about referrals right away. We don't need to be thinking about treatment and next steps and just really that therapeutic listening is so valuable and just to be there in that moment with them. I couldn't agree more, Molly. I think my biggest takeaway is Chantal's approach of one eye out and one eye in from her years of meditation practice, thinking about half our bandwidth being on the person that's in front of us. And as you said, using that kind, humble listening and also looking inward and gazing on ourselves and figuring out our reactions and being able to name them as well. Something I will carry with me and hopefully even try out today. I like that. I I think I'm probably about 90% out, 10% in when I'm with patients and I probably should find a better balance. So (laughs) me too, me too. So this has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoibleim. And I'm Dr. Ira Krasnovska. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment.